When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Maybe it's just that you don't know how to use social courtesy. Oh, that's old-fashioned. Watch how Lizzie Post and Dan Post act as host and hostess. They know that courtesy means showing respect, thinking of the other person, real friendliness. Hello. And welcome to Awesome Etiquette. Where we explore modern etiquette through the lens of consideration, respect, and honesty. On today's show, we take on your etiquette questions about exiting a bridal shower that's gone over its end time, friends encroaching on your cruise vacation, religious inquiries at work, and lending out your vacation homes and what you can expect. Plus, your most excellent feedback, an etiquette salute, and a postscript segment from the Rituals of Dinner on Toasting. Coming up. Awesome Etiquette comes to you from the studios of Vermont Public Radio and is proud to be produced in beautiful Burlington, Vermont, by the Emily Post Institute. I'm Lizzie Post. And I'm Dan Post-Senning. I have been so enjoying this gorgeous fall. I've spruced up my backyard, and every morning before work, I sit there with my coffee and my dog, or dogs, and uh, it's just, it is lovely. I tweeted a picture of it today. I'm so proud of you. Sometimes you are the one who's a little resistant to embrace the change of seasons. I don't do well with change, period. But it's funny because I really embrace winter and the hunker down of winter. Like, I really embrace that shutdown, but I do not embrace fall. And it is even my birthday month and season, and I don't embrace fall. There's something about it that no, but this must be my year to embrace it. You're a a winter is here girl, not a winter is coming. Right, exactly. But it's just weird because I'm a Libra and you'd think I'd like this season. Is it true that there's something different about the light when the fall comes? Yes, I believe so. I mean, I really think the light is different. It has a more golden quality to it. And the air is crisper, for sure. I mean, it's not the hazy humidity. I stepped outside the other morning, and I felt that crispness in the air. And I kid you not, the sound of geese flying south was sort of ringing in the air. I looked up. There was that V. It was pointing (laughs) due south. South, And there they go. (laughs) I called back to Pooch. I was like, come outside, come outside. Bring a new shit. got to hear this. This is fall. <laughs> it is. No, it's really hit and it's beautiful. The mornings are cooler. We finally got, you know, during our train the trainer weeks, it was like 80 degrees, which was so unusual. But now we really have hit that fall, fall temperature, fall light, fall feeling. It's really nice. I'm loving getting to wear sweaters and my Carhartt vests again. And like, you know, it's a little, everything's a little cozier. The Vermont winter wardrobe has emerged. I dig it. Hey, wait a second. The weather's nice and all, but we did something really fun this weekend because we had a big family thing up at your house. We celebrated Anisha's christening. I loved it. It was a lovely service, and there was a guest speaker there from Australia. or No, New Zealand, excuse me. It was very nice to go to your church and see what you experience when you and, and Pooja choose to take Anisha to church, and especially the choir. 
I would go there just to hear them each week. They were absolutely beautiful. But it was such a wonderful message of love and welcoming and community support. And I just wanted to say that, you know, it was nice to to go to a service that really had, not that services don't usually have that feel, but it was just nice to go to a service that really had that kind of feel. And you know, I'm not a member of your church community, and I really felt like your church community was honoring and congratulating our whole family, and it really felt like that at the service. It was very welcoming. I mean, talk about etiquette all around. I like, can't tell you how happy <laughs> a lot of the people that regularly attend that church would be to hear you say that. Oh! <laughs> and how, how happy it makes me to hear you say that, because that, that was, was very so much the, the, the spirit that we were hoping to help foster yeah. when we invited people and we invited a lot of people <laughs> it was definitely the biggest family gathering since the wedding if you think about how many people from both really? Pooja's family and my family and whole... now our family were there you're right because at last christmas even though Pooja's immediate family joined us her extended family did not and this was her more extended family yeah and i will confess to having a tear in my eye before oh. it began and it was very much seeing all the people that showed up and thinking about the community of love and support that Anisha enjoys. Can I also just say how hysterical was it when after this beautiful, long, like, explanation of the love and support that this child is receiving as uh, our, our minister. minister is holding her and kind of like we're, we're all celebrating that this is happening. And then she just kind of looks right at him and goes like, like, okay, we got it. Like, we're good. She is such a character now. It's so fun to see how social she is and, and her interactions with everyone. Like, she's she's so close to talking and just busting out this personality that she's formed. She is expressing yeah. and asserting herself more and more. I know. I'm sorry to just be gushing about Dan's baby, but we kind of had like a celebrate Anisha weekend. And so I'm, I'm still kind of running off of that. Well, she's wiped out. She slept... <laughs> Almost 12 hours, one wake up, two nights ago, eight hours last night straight, no wake up. I think she's still recovering. Oh, my goodness. Well, it was a lovely weekend. Good job, hosts. Good job, mom and dad. You guys did an awesome job, Um, you know, having a wonderful moment to celebrate, a milestone. Well, um, hopefully many more to come, and thank (laughs) you for being a part of it. We have some questions to get to. Oh, yeah, we definitely do. There's a show to do. (laughs) Let's get to it. Awesome Etiquette gets support from StoryWorth. There are some stories about your mom's life that you truly never get tired of hearing. From hilarious to heartfelt, tear-jerking to plot-twisting, mom's retelling of the events always brings a bit of joy. Just in time for Mother's Day, we here at Awesome Etiquette found the perfect gift that can capture all of your mom's stories for your family forever. It's called StoryWorth. StoryWorth helps you preserve precious memories and stories from your mom or a mother figure in your life for years to come. Here's how it works. Each week, StoryWorth emails your loved one a thought-provoking question that you get to help pick. What was your first job? Who was your first crush? (laughs) StoryWorth makes the writing process a breeze. All your loved one needs to do is to respond to the email prompt with a story. Long or short, it doesn't matter. I did this with my mom, and it was really, really rewarding. You'll be emailed a copy of your loved one's responses as they're submitted over the course of the year. 
you'll get to enjoy their retelling of the stories. Some you probably already know, or maybe the ones that you're surprised by you haven't heard before. <laughs> After that year of fun discovery and reminiscing, StoryWorth compiles your loved one's stories and photos into a beautiful keepsake hardcover book that you'll be able to share and revisit for generations to come. You can even keep a copy of the book for yourself. Give all the moms in your life a unique, heartfelt gift that you all will cherish for years. Story Worth. Right now, save $10 on your first purchase when you go to storyworth.com manners. That's storyworth, S-T-O-R-Y-W-O-R-T-H dot com slash manners. It's manners with an S to save $10 on your first purchase. And now back to our show. Awesome Etiquette is here to answer your questions on how to behave. And if you have a question for us, you can email it to awesomeetiquette at emilypost.com. Leave us a voicemail at 802-858-KIND. That's 802-858-5463. Or hit us up on Twitter and Facebook. Just use the hashtag awesomeetiquette so we know you want your question on the show. Our first question is about being trapped at a bridal shower. Hi, Lizzie and Dan. I love your podcast and greatly appreciate the insights you provide to the world about etiquette and common courtesy. My question today pertains to a bridal shower I recently attended. I received an invitation in the mail three weeks prior, which to me is not enough notice, but that's a separate issue. (laughs) The invitation stated that the shower would take place from 12 p.m. to 2 p.m. I made the assumption that because the host put an end time on the invitation that they would aim to have games, gift opening, and lunch wrapped up close to 2 p.m. I made loose plans with a family member for 3 p.m., assuming that would be plenty of time to allow for a little bit of a long goodbye at the end of the party. However, by 1.40, we were just finishing lunch and starting on presents, and there were a lot of presents. (laughs) I was in a quandary, and my anxiety was rising. Was it impolite to leave at 2.30, even though I was well past the stated end time? Should I attempt to cancel my 3 p.m. plans via a discreet text message during the gift opening? Ultimately, I decided to depart at 2.30 when another guest exited due to another obligation. At this point, there were still about seven gifts left, so I would imagine that the party went until 3 or 3.30. I would love to know your opinion on what the appropriate response to this situation would have been. Also, if a host states a party end time on the invitation, is it fair to assume that they will keep track of the time to keep the party on schedule? Or is this just a guideline that I, as a guest, should know will be extended? Thank you. Trapped. Trapped. I have been there. It was a baby shower, but I've been in a similar situation. These things happen they at showers. They really do. And when you have start and end times, which, first of all, two hours, I have learned for a shower is not realistic when you have more than, I would say, seven guests. Um, I think when you've got a party of like seven to ten people, it takes about three hours to do meet and greet actual food if there's any even even showers where it's just a buffet table and not heavy buffet items just light finger food still seems to take an hour of talking an hour of opening and then an hour of some kind of like food or that sort of thing i don't know or an hour of goodbyes almost and sometimes people think there are going to be games yeah that there's going to be other activities that are going on so even if you're not sitting down that mix and mingle slash activities time absolutely i love your question of should the host keep the party on schedule. And first of all, that answer is absolutely yes. If a host is stating 12 to 2, 
two, they darn well better be moving it along from 12 to two. That would be considerate for their guests. Doesn't always happen. Some people aren't the best at estimating time. This is clearly what happened. Having been caught in this, having added an hour, thinking a, a shower might take three hours, realizing the particular shower I was at was going to take four and having scheduled a date for after it, I was really like in a pickle and I had to do the leave early thing, leave at the time that I I thought the shower was going to be ending at. And I think you did the right thing here. You had made plans. You had buffered in an hour of time in between for both travel and a half hour's worth of goodbyes. I think that was fairly smart. I'm just saying like that to me seems like logical reasoning. I just think that given that the host was estimating too short, you were caught in a really hard place because you couldn't do your proper estimations on a realistic time frame. That sounds good to me. I heard in the question the idea that, well, could I have sent a text and pushed those other things back? Would that have been the appropriate thing to do? Maybe. To me, there's a prioritization that goes on. If that's an easy thing to do, you might decide to do that. I am enjoying the shower. The shower is... Fun and the thing I'm doing later is easy to move around. I think at that stage, having made plans with that other person, that texting them is appropriate and good courtesy. It's honoring that relationship and that time contract. Question. Would you first play that wonderful platinum rule moment and think about the other person and what you know about them and how long it's been since you've seen all the circumstantial things that could make that actually a higher stakes get together than maybe just your usual, oh, coffee after this thing is over. I think this is exactly the kind of thinking that comes into play. And is there a right answer? No, because in some ways you're, you're dealing with a difficult situation yeah. where there are two conflicting manners. You don't leave before the party's over, right. but because the host has put an end date on it and you're pa- or an end time, time on yeah. it and because you're past that end time, you kind of have some leeway to say, you know, there is something that I'm committed to that's happening at three o'clock. And I've got to go. You do your best not to make a scene out of your departure. We've talked about exiting parties mm-hmm. well. I think this is one of those times to make a discreet exit. You might not ghost your host. No. Let them Absolutely know what's not. going on, don't ghost the host. but also don't or make the guest of honor in this particular case. Sorry to interrupt. No, I think that's those are the two sort of points of consideration that I would think about that exit being both discreet but also appropriately acknowledged. Absolutely, and I just want to say, trapped that I think that given the circumstances you were under, the timing you explained to us, I think that you actually really got out of this in a good way. And that there were only seven gifts left. So even though you think the party would have gone till 3 or 3.30, so possibly an hour after you left, there were only seven gifts left. I think you did a good job of getting through most of all of the kind of participation moments in the party. You fulfilled your obligations as a guest well. As well as you could, yeah. (laughs) Before we leave this question... Completely. I had one little follow-up question I wanted to ask. What is your thought on a three-week timing for an invitation before a shower? Three weeks is technically within the time frame, but I think it's on the early side of it. Four weeks, to me, is more comfortable. I think that nowadays, with the frequency of which we have evites and Facebook invites and I just think people's social calendars are a little more full than they used to be with the options that are out there. And so to me, four weeks starts to seem a lot more realistic than three. Um, That might be something you see us change in the future, given the nature of inviting these days. But four weeks really gives you a good amount of time to get a gift. It also gives you time to make sure that the honoree is going to have guests at their party. Three weeks is cutting it close, even though it's still within our recommended time frame. 
Trapped, we really hope this helps and that you feel a little less trapped in the future. Party can't really get going until everyone arrives. So whenever you go to a party, Cindy, always be on time. And when the clock says it's time to go home, be sure to leave on time. That's important. Dan, here is an interesting one about personal life crossing into professional life, and it has to do with religion and work. Hello, Lizzie and Dan. I have a work etiquette question for you. I received two emails from a very nice client that, in addition to business, also includes an invitation to be sent a link to religious material. With the combination of working in a public sector job, separation of church and state, and religion not being a tier one conversation topic, particularly for the workplace, I do not feel it would be appropriate for me to engage this request. But even by saying, yes, send the link, or no, I'm good, I'm engaging with the topic. I was able to ignore the topic in my reply the first time by addressing only the business portion of the email. But there's nothing reply-worthy in this second email, so it's either completely ignore the email or say something. I haven't said anything yet, and my current course of action is no reply. It feels rude to ignore an email from someone with whom I have a rapport, but it feels inappropriate and possibly offensive to him to reply and say, I don't want the material sent. How to proceed in a situation like this? Thanks, as always, for your insights. Requisite religion reply. Interesting, right? This is an interesting question, and I'm going to break convention in two ways in how I answer this question. Oftentimes, our format on the show is one of us reads the question, the other begins the answer. (laughs) And the the second convention that I'm going to break today is the one where I often (laughs) tackle business etiquette questions. Wait a minute. Does this mean you're just going to drop this question into my lap? Why are you doing that? Because you did such good script notes on this. I thought you had a really good take on this particular question. Oh, okay. Lizzie Post, what do you think about this? All right. So here we go. I think that this might just be in this person's signature. Some people have things like God bless or they have quotes by famous thinkers, um, influential people at the bottom of their emails. We tend to advise in business to leave those out. I just want to state that. That is our position as the Emily Post Institute. But it might be that this is just in this person's signature and they aren't expecting they are basically just throwing it out there as a way to help further their mission, their thinking in life, but it is not meant for you to have to engage with it every time. The thing I cannot tell from your question to us is whether this is just appearing in that signature every time or if they are actually asking you each time in addition to whatever business information you're exchanging. So number one point, avoid doing this in the first place, but (laughs) I am torn on whether or not to ignore it or engage with it. I really respect your perspective of having to engage with it even to say no brings the question of the desire to consume religious material into your work life. And I don't think that you necessarily should be forced to engage with that. And yet at the same time, I understand your feeling of it's rude to not answer a question that's being asked to you. And so my line of thinking is that I would engage with it and just say, I see the question in your signature or I see this has come up twice in emails. No, I'm not interested in the religious material or the link. 
Um, I don't even think you have to say thank you because I don't think you're appreciative of the question being asked. And so I don't think it's necessary to say thank you for asking. I think you've keyed on exactly what I would use to assess the degree of responsibility for a reply here. Gotcha. That sometimes it's a a formulaic offer. Yeah. And by formulaic, I mean like just exactly what you said, that it's in that signature. It's built into the email. email, And I think if it is that, that you're not obligated to reply. Yeah. That's not a request that's a really a personal request and it doesn't well, inspire, it is a personal request, yeah. But it, but it's not um, intended just for you personally. Correct, it's, correct. I see what you're saying now. And and because of that, it doesn't inspire in me the idea that I need to reply personally right. to it if I'm not interested. Right. If that second email, if it wasn't sort of a pro forma part of a signature. Yeah, if it's just If it really is again. directed to you individually, I think that you reply with the honest answer, either you're interested or not. And I think it's perfectly reasonable to, to give that reply. Yeah. But I think it becomes a little more of um, something where you actually want to acknowledge it coming in because it is really being offered to you personally. What I might make sure that I do in that case is that because of my suggestion that you don't have to say thank you for asking me this question in your in your no, your polite no to this person, is that I might make sure to include a closing after answering the question that really says that, you know, I hope you have a wonderful weekend or that addresses that rapport that you have with the person. That way you're answering the question. You aren't saying you're appreciative of the question having been asked. However, you are still trying to maintain the good rapport that you do with the, have with that person. You know, I'm so looking forward to doing business again in the future, or I hope you and your family have a wonderful weekend, if that's something you've exchanged uh, comments about. Well, requisite religion reply, we hope that that helps you figure out the right course of action to take with this particular situation. Since then, I've learned a lot of do's and don'ts about office etiquette by watching the others in the office. I learned that personal telephone calls interfered with business. Oh, I was so mad I could have slapped her face. No. All right, cuz, I am tossing this one to you, and you're definitely answering it because you've been on a cruise and I haven't. So our next question is titled, Cruise Conundrum. Hi, Lizzie and Dan, and the rest of the Post clan. Oh, I like that that rhymes. (laughs) Thank you so much for your podcast. I love to listen while commuting in the car with my children. We are all learning more about how to move through our world with consideration, respect, and honesty. Thanks to your work. Oh, I'm glad. My question is a bit tricky and tough. I have tried to apply your approach to noodling out how to handle it. I need to reach out to the experts. Earlier this year, my husband and I decided to book a cruise for our family. Through the help of a friend who is a travel agent, we selected a cruise that would maximize our time and stretch our dollar while still providing plenty of opportunities for memory making. This will be our first cruise with our children. We were able to work into the budget and upgrade to a balcony room. This will be perfect, offering some privacy and great views. It will also provide my husband and I a quiet place to spend time together while the kids go to bed. Soon after we booked our room, one of my closest friends came into a small windfall of cash. She didn't have it earmarked for anything and even asked what I thought she should do. Her family has not taken a vacation in some time, so I suggested she set it aside for that. Once I booked our cruise, it wasn't long before she called the cruise agent I had used, a former colleague of hers, and booked her family of five on the same cruise in an interior room. 
while I am thrilled to have these dear friends join us. However, planning one of my favorite parts of traveling feels much more complicated now. There has already been discussion about dining times and excursions to coordinate some things. How do I communicate that I feel pressure to find the right balance of family versus family? Friends that are close enough to be family? Time. Additionally, since we have a balcony and they do not, is there a polite way to draw boundaries so that they respect that we do not want to share that space? I feel selfish not wanting to share it, but we chose to pay for this upgrade while they did not. Our families are very close and I am excited to spend time together, but not all of our time. I am sure there is a great way to address this so we will be able to enjoy time together as family units and respect one another's space and budget. Please help me post family warmly cruise conundrum. First of all, hello to everyone in the car. I hope the commute is going smoothly this morning. Hello. I also want to say I love the term family. <laughs> that is, maybe it's out there. I've never heard it before. I love it. <laughs> that is really clever and kind of cute. And I'm sure it's going to pop up again now that I've heard it one time. <laughs> I am sympathizing with you just a little bit here. Yeah. There is um, definitely a little bit of a rudeness that I want to acknowledge Please. in this person booking without talking to you about it. And it sounds like that happened. That Can I ask the question just yes. on that thought? Dan's like looking at me going, I know she wants to say something. I know she wants to say something. Is it really, though? I mean, do you if you go on a cruise, do you really have any kind of standing to tell someone else they can't book that same cruise? No. Okay, there. Okay, good. I'm glad. I feel good about that. This is in that gray area territory where, to me, it's just a little bit awkward. Yeah. Where These are best friends. We'll give that, like, that this is, they are close enough to be family. Just because we've gone down this road. <laughs> I'll say, if, if, if I were to plan a long-distance bike ride and I'm going with a tour group totally. that's doing it, and I was telling you about it, and then you showed up at work one day and said, hey, I bought a ticket on that trip, too. Yeah. Granted, that's a slightly smaller group. Yeah, I was going to say, that's a small enough group that, yes, I would see the, the etiquette infraction there. Boats are bigger, but they are small spaces in some ways. And when you're with another family that you know well on that same ship, there is going to be a lot of chance encounters, if not planned interaction, if not just a lot of time spent together. I support the advice that the friend should have asked first or at least just said, I really want to do this. Don't worry. We can have separate vacations, even though I'm booking it here. That would be my like etiquette number one. Yeah, okay, they don't I'm necessarily you. ask your permission, but a check-in, a I think, check-in would be appreciated. Like just an acknowledgement of it's okay if this is separate space. It, like, I don't want to encroach on your vacation, basically. Okay, I'm with you now. Continue, sorry. So, <laughs> positive, proactive advice moving forward. Okay. First thing is that I like that there are already some discussions going on yes. about how this is going to work. I think it gives you a perfect opportunity, cruise conundrum, to ask for some alone time. Totally. To start to set that boundary, that expectation early, and it can be done gently but consistently, firmly with some security on your part that that's not an unreasonable thing to say. My spouse and I are so looking forward to some time alone together. Mm -hmm. We are really looking forward to a opportunity to send the kids on some kid adventures whatever it is whatever you can do to start to set that expectation that there is some family time expectations some maybe just spouse time expectation and maybe even the expectation that you're looking forward to meeting some new people that one of the things that can be really enjoyable about a cruise or an experience like this is that you 
make some new acquaintances, that you maybe even make some new friends. Maybe you just make some trip friends. But that can be one of the really enjoyable parts of an experience like this. And if you've got your dinners planned out every night, the opportunity to meet those people at the next table or to invite someone else to join you for dinner do start to go down a little bit. And I think that just by talking about looking forward to some of those moments, you can start to to build that space and that breathing room. So I had a thought about that's like, it's so great to encourage Cruz Conundrum to do all those good things that, you know, and she can instigate all those conversations, like she can bring them up. But what happens when it's the friend who says, hey, what if we like, you know, send the kids to the babysitter or the play center and we do like, you know, champagne and hors d'oeuvres on your balcony, you know, when the friend suggests it? Because when you're close enough, when you're family, like people will make those kinds of suggestions. You know, it's like they're they're kind of blurs this line between host and guest and friend and family. So when that happens, I was thinking we've got to give Cruz Conundrum some sample language to ensure that she knows what to do. Because when someone says something like that, it's very hard to not a want to feel generous. Like there's a generous part of you that's like, yeah, we would love to do that. But I love the part of Cruz Conundrum that's like, yeah, no, that's like our our special thing that we did for ourselves for this trip. I don't really want to share it. And that's OK. So I might instead say, you know, we'd rather get out and explore the ship tonight. What if we go do drinks at the XYZ bar or the, you know, terrace over here? I think having that suggestion to get out of the room, especially on a cruise, is a really easy fallback. Definitely try to find some of those shared activities or spaces that are that redirect territory, yes. that are the places where you'd want to engage. Maybe it's the, I love redirect, by the way. Great word. You get breakfasts together and that leaves some dinner time to do family time or whatever it is, whatever it is. Maybe it's the, the spa that's the place that you connect and share stories from whatever independent adventures you're taking with your family. But it's okay to say no to the suggestions she makes. It is okay. And particularly, I'm thinking about um, uh, a dividing line between the discussions that are happening beforehand and yes. the discussions that are happening on the trip. Oh, I think point. that beforehand, you love every idea for a minute. <laughs> The, the positive noncommittal expo- response that you love that idea and your idea for alone time. Because really, re- realistically, probably both things are going to be happening. Yes. When you're in the moment, that's the moment. When you're on the trip, when you're on the ship, when you're in the moment, I think that's the time to be clear with those boundaries, to have some prepared responses, to be willing to say no every once in a while, to be willing to just say, you know, I'm really looking forward to a little solo time with my spouse tonight. I'm sorry we can't say yes. And that's that's enough. That That's a reasonable, okay answer. Have patience. Try not to get drawn into emotional frustration in those moments. Have patience with yourself. Have patience with your family. Set those boundaries. It's perfectly reasonable. Can I say, too, that I'm always amazed at the number of times where I think about something like this and I worry about something like this that I want to protect And I'm amazed how just being able to exercise my right to say no a couple times or have that ask not be made, you know what I mean? The moments where I have that freedom all of a sudden make me feel a lot more generous and feel okay about offering up a night of hanging out on the balcony because I've gotten my time. I've carved out that thing that I wanted, that kind of selfish. And I hate even saying it. It's like self-interest or, you know, my moment. I'm just going to call it my moment. Like, 
So I'm hoping Cruz Conundrum is able to carve out enough time on that balcony that it transfers to that moment where it, it feels good to extend the invitation. And that might not happen. You might keep it as your own private little space the whole time, and that's okay too. But I'm always amazed at where I open up to inviting people in. Respect for self is an important part of respect, and it's amazing what affording yourself that self-respect can do. Cruz Conundrum, I know that Early on in my relationship, a cruise was a a special time for Pooja and I. I look back at our time on that cruise with great fondness, and I hope that you create memories that you also treasure for a lifetime. And that's the end of a perfect visit in the paradise of the Pacific. It's time to return to the ship saying aloha for a little while. Then it's homeward bound with lifelong memories of a cruise to Hawaii. Our next question is titled, Hosts versus Landlords or Homeowners or Hosts? (laughs) Hi, Lizzie and Dan. I love your show, and thank you for bringing a little civility back into the world. I have a question regarding episode 156 about host guest cleanup after a house guest stay. Do you think there's a difference between hosting someone in your home versus having a guest use your vacation home in your absence and the guest's responsibility? My version of this question is as follows. My husband and I are fortunate enough to own three vacation homes in addition to our main residence. When hosting guests where we are present and have invited the guests, I completely agree with your comments. And our guests are never asked to clean up, etc. But in our situation, we find that we are often asked by various friends and family to use one of our vacation homes. We are always happy to lend our places out. We don't accept money for the use, and when any of our guests offer to pay, we tell them that they are welcome to, but not obligated to, make a donation to a charity. In these instances, we are not joining our guests, and I provide written instructions for the home on how to operate electronics, restaurants to try, and also a section about closing up the home. I try to word it as kindly as possible, but frankly, my expectation is that these guests leave the home in the same condition they found it. At times, we have other friends using a home right after one guest leaves, and we don't always have time to walk through and check the homes, as they are all over the state. If we were to hire a housekeeper after each of these requests, it would actually become a financial burden to us to accommodate the many requests we receive. We do have a housekeeper go in after we use the homes, so they are always clean for guests. After hearing your episode, I'm questioning if I'm being a bad host by asking my guests to leave the home the way they found it. As I said above, when we invite guests to stay with us, we never would ask this. Help, am I being a bad host? Are the etiquette rules different for this scenario? Thanks, Trisha. Trisha, this is a great question. I am so glad you brought it up because there is a difference between hosting someone when you are staying there and you as the hostess and homeowner are able to take care of everything and very generously lending your vacation homes free of charge to your friends. I absolutely think what you have been doing is not only the right thing, but I think you you might even be able to be a little more direct about it. But you and I were talking about this question before because you've been in a situation where you were being loaned kind of a vacation home and a, a situation arose around cleaning. This was within the Post family. Yeah. And I I just wanted to affirm for our question asker that this is exactly the way the Post family handles a very similar situation. Totally. The, the, the house that Pooja and I were staying at with my parents uh, over our vacation on Martha's Vineyard had a very similar set of directions that were designed to help people be good guests. Love because it. <laughs> it, it, it is information that you need. I, I really like the campsite rule when I'm in that situation. I think that my cousin Lizzie has a really clear 
clear distinction on this between being hosted and being lent something. Mm-hmm. That when you're lent something, you really need to take good care of it. You need to return it in as good or better. As good or better condition. The campsite rule. Leave it just a little better than you found it if you can. And it makes it easier to do that if a host who knows how to take care of a house well has left some good directions on how to do that. And by the tone of the way you ask your question, I am sure the tone of those directions that you have left are appropriate. I think that communication is really key in these situations, in these scenarios. The follow-up story that I had wanted to tell after yeah. we, we addressed the question episode 156 was that the last time I was staying at this home, we had our usual set of directions, but they were also based on the assumption that there would be a cleaning service that was going to come through between the yeah. different guests that were sharing the home. Right. And for some reason, that cleaning service wasn't going to be happening. Something – they got sick that week or something happened. And there were actually a few things beyond the usual list of instructions that the homeowners were really hoping that we could do. And they reached out to us and we said, absolutely. Of course, we not only would be willing to, we would appreciate a chance to do something to help contribute to this house and this whole situation that we appreciate so much. And we made an extra effort to kind of turn it up a little bit to prepare the house well for the next people that were going to be there. And we heard about it later, just about what impeccable condition the house had been left in, how much it was appreciated. And um, the appreciation was flowing in both directions. And I don't think you're asking too much. In fact, I think usually in situations like this, your guests are really going to appreciate knowing how they can be the best possible guest. This is the host guest dance at its finest. It absolutely is. The one thing I'm going to caution you with is just that not everyone has the same standards. So if you have to ask guests to vacuum, it's really good to list what you want vacuumed. You know, floors all the way into corners and, you know, use the upholstery wand on the furniture. If those are the things that need to be asked to be done, let's say that they're bringing a dog and you've already agreed the dog can get up on the furniture and stuff. It's okay to then ask, you know, just if you don't mind, we don't have a cleaning crew that comes in between guests. These are totally reasonable things to ask. If you ever had a guest who pushed back on these things, I would politely say, okay, we understand and and probably hire a cleaning crew after that guest. And then I wouldn't have that guest back. I wouldn't lend them my vacation home again. And I think that that's okay too. One thing I did want to bring up is that it is okay for you to be clear about what does happen and doesn't happen. It's okay for you to let those guests know you don't have a cleaning service that comes in between. One thought I did have is that if you happen to have a neighbor you really trust or you really like or who's particularly helpful, you might ask that neighbor to do a walkthrough and just see if there's some kind of an arrangement you could set up with them where they can do that walkthrough and maybe they just alert you if you do need to hire a cleaning crew. That way you're not having to hire them every single time, but that you at least get some kind of eye on it since you're not able to physically be there each time there's a transition. A few things that are worth mentioning about that checklist for the end of a visit that might be useful to keep in mind are condition of bathrooms. Yes. How you want bathrooms to be (laughs) left. How you want people to handle linens and laundry. So towels, sheets, beds. Are beds meant to be stripped? Are they sheets meant to be washed? Are towels meant to be laundered and returned to the bathroom to a laundry closet? Mm -hmm. These are perfectly reasonable directions to give you some of the questions people are going to have in mind. Another thing that often comes up is trash or garbage. Yes. Where do trash and garbages get emptied? When does the trash service or pickup happen? Is Are things left by the curb? Are they left in 
bins in the breezeway, in the driveway, in the kitchen. So bathrooms, laundry, garbage, vacuuming, kitchen, and dishes. Mm-hmm. These are all very common basic areas and places where people are likely to have used things that are shared communal parts of the house and really probably need some attention between visits and people will appreciate knowing how to manage those areas. Absolutely. Trisha, as we always say on this show, using etiquette as a form of self-reflection is amazing. And clearly you have a generous heart and that is going to come through as you set these boundaries with your friends and family. Good luck. We hope that it gets just a little bit easier. General cleaning is made much easier if each person picks up after himself. Jobs such as vacuuming, dusting, and scrubbing must be done. They sure must. No wonder mother's all worn out and sick. As always, thank you so much for your questions. You can send us updates or comments to awesomeetiquette at emilypost.com or leave us a message at 802-858-KIND. That's 802-858-5463. Or hit us up on Twitter or Facebook. Just use the hashtag awesomeetiquette so that we know you want your question on the show. Each week, we like to hear your thoughts about the questions we answer and the topics we cover. And this week, we have Catherine, who wrote in regarding our unfriending question, where our listener's sister was going through a messy divorce and had asked the listener to please unfriend her ex-husband. The listener wasn't sure if this was the right thing to do. Catherine writes, Dear Lizzie and Dan, thank you for an always entertaining and educational podcast. I've been thinking a lot about the question related to the sister's request to unfriend relatives of her ex-husband on social media sites. This could be more than merely an etiquette issue, but also one of safety for her. I recognize that we cannot know the reason for the breakup of the marriage. However, if she feels this strongly, it makes me, as one who worked with victims of violence in a previous job, wonder whether there was an element of abuse. If her family retains the social media ties, they could unwittingly expose her to continued monitoring by her ex-spouse. Blocking their posts will not stop them or her ex from seeing her activity. She may not want to disclose the abuse, but is asking for her family to unfriend those connected to him in order to protect herself. They should respect her wishes, whatever the reason, and not pressure her to explain why or put their own social interests above her safety or comfort. After all, she is their sister. Thank you for considering this difficult and potentially life-saving reason for unfriending family or friends following a breakup of a relationship. I really wanted to put Catherine's feedback into the show because it is a safety concern worth mentioning for sure. And I believe in the question that we were not in the territory of a safety concern, but it's worth noting that you never know why someone is asking, especially if they haven't disclosed even the basic level of this is a safety concern. I need to ask you to do this for my safety. And there are situations where even that might be uncomfortable to say. So I just want to say that it's important just to note that there is this possibility out there. And you shouldn't just automatically assume it's for overly dramatic or unreasonable reasons. And so I was really appreciative to Catherine of writing in. Our second piece of feedback comes from our not an Airbnb question from episode 156. This seems to be a hot topic. (laughs) Totally. 
Hi, Lizzie and Dan. I continue to be a huge fan of the podcast after over two years of listening, so thank you for continuing to produce awesome content each week. I have some feedback about episode 156 for the question about the guest cabin and how the host could communicate the expectations for cleanup before guests depart. My friend's family has a guest cabin on the lake, and they are incredibly generous about inviting people to stay throughout the spring, summer, and fall. My friend's mom has a very handy guest guide in a binder on the coffee table in the main living area. It's immediately obvious as soon as you enter the house. The binder has tons of useful information for guests, including the Wi-Fi password, information about where important things are kept, like towels and extra pillows and the oars for the canoe, do's and don'ts about the trash and recycling, and most importantly, a handy little day of departure checklist. It's very similar to what I've seen at many Airbnbs where I've stayed. When a guide like this is written in the spirit of helpfulness and has a warm, friendly tone, I think it's the perfect solution. As a guest, I was grateful for the guidance, knew exactly what would be most helpful to my hosts on the day I was leaving. Everyone wins. I hope this is helpful for the fellow listener. Thanks again for producing such a great podcast, Best Ariel. Was that not everything you suggested, Dan? It's so nice to hear it in someone else's words. Thank you, Ariel, for this comment. And thank you for sending us your thoughts and updates. Please keep them coming. You can send your comment or update to awesomeetiquette at emilypost.com or leave us a message at 802-858-KIND. That's 802-858-5463. Program it into your phone. It's time for our Postscript segment, where we dive deeper into a topic of etiquette. And today's Postscript is straight out of Margaret Visser's The Rituals of Dinner on Toasting. It isn't so much the the rules of toasting the way you would find them in an Emily Post etiquette book. It's got history to it, which is why I love Margaret Visser's book, is that it's just rich with history. The philosopher Socrates was famous for remaining unfuddled by liquor and continuing relentlessly to philosophize when almost everyone else at the symposium had either left or passed out. Men in groups have often found it irresistible to boast of their drinking valor and to challenge others to see who could take the most. It could be impossible to turn down such a challenge without losing face. Alexander the Great is said to have died by returning one pledge too many. An ancient Greek libation was a sort of concrete prayer, a sharing of wine with the gods. The Homeric ritual for this act entailed rising to one's feet, holding a cup full of wine in the right hand, looking up into the sky, deliberately spilling some of the liquid, praying with both arms and cup raised, and then drinking. The Olympian gods were not necessarily thought to have imbibed the wine, but they accepted the gift, the sacrifice of that all-important first mouthful, and a connection with them was thereby established. Drinking too, people was and remains in some respects similar to pouring libations. The toaster rises to his or her feet as a gesture of respect, and everybody else rises too. If the recipient of the honor is important enough, all must certainly raise their glasses. When men wore hats at meals, hats had to be removed. The toast is spoken, and it is very important to look the person being toasted in the eyes. A bow or nod of the head follows, and everyone sips wine. Taking only very little wine at this point is a modern constraint. Toasting in the past has often meant draining the whole vessel— Because we all now have our own glasses, we substitute drinking simultaneously for sharing the cup. 
The Saxon Wassel Bowl was named after the toasting formula, Was hail, be hail, or be healthy. The favorite toast has always been to wish for the good health of the person being toasted. The Saxon host's wife or his daughter would enter the hall with a large bowl, sip from it as a taste test, proving there was no poison in it, <laughs> sacrifice the, the host, and offer the cup of welcome to the guests, toasting each one. Later, the cupbearer would ladle out spiced wine or mulled ale into each person's own cup. But the custom of everyone partaking from the single bowl was remembered and survived, for example, as the British ceremony of passing the loving cup from person to person round the whole company. Three people stand up at a time, one to pass the cup, one to drink, and a third to defend. The defender had to draw his sword and hold it at the ready, for the huge two-handled cup took all the attention of the drinker and left him vulnerable to attack. As always, love and the possibility of violence walk hand in hand at the table. Margaret Visser is spectacular. What I would love to do is pick up more of this section in another postscript segment because it does go on and it talks about the Greeks and then Germanic and Scandinavian and Eastern European countries. So I would love to do a follow-up toasting segment. I know we've done toasting a couple times before, but this is good stuff. I'm always ready for more rituals of dinner. We like to end our show on a high note, so we turn to you to hear about the good etiquette you're seeing and experiencing out in the world, and that can come in so many forms. And today's comes from Rebecca, and she writes, Hello, Dan and Lizzie. I know you're looking for more etiquette salutes, so I'm excited to share this one with you. Last week, my husband and I, who don't have any children, hosted our three nieces, ages five, seven, and eight, for eight days. They live in Kentucky, but we live in Wisconsin. We went with a friend to a lake with a beach to let the girls play and swim. We had never been there, but went at the recommendation of that friend. Upon arriving, we realized that it was a dog-friendly beach. Unfortunately, the oldest and youngest girls are scared of dogs because they haven't been around many friendly ones. Later on, a woman, Colleen, arrived with two large dogs. She purposely kept her dogs in a section and played with them. When they wandered towards the girls, she would call them back. When she realized that they were scared of the dogs, she walked over holding on to the dogs and asked if the girls wanted to meet them. She introduced the dogs to them, told them about her dogs, and let them cautiously touch the dogs while reassuring me and the girls that her dogs were very friendly and only wanted to play. My salute is to Colleen. She was a great example of a thoughtful dog owner who realized that others around her might not be as comfortable or experienced with dogs and who cared enough about these three little girls to be considerate and helpful. Because Colleen kindly responded to their fear, the girls were able to play around the dogs without fear the rest of the time at the beach. Thank you, Colleen. Rebecca. Rebecca, I want to second your thanks as someone who is interested both in kid manners and pet manners. I appreciate all of the efforts to cross these divides and make it work. And thank you for listening. Thank you to everyone who sent us something. You can send us questions, salutes, and comments by email to awesomeetiquette at emilypost.com. By phone, you can leave us a message at 802-858-KIND. 
That's 802-858-5463. On Twitter. I am at Daniel underscore Post. And I'm at Lizzie A. Post. On Facebook, we're Awesome Etiquette and the Emily Post Institute. And please help us out. Subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast app and leave us a review. Our show is edited by Chris Albertine. Thank, Thank you, you, Chris. Chris. Oh,